All right, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we are joined by guests who are building accessible businesses or products, advocating for inclusion or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but rather advocate on their behalf and amplify their voice. Today, I'm joined by Georgia Carmichael, a world-class athlete who has been dealt with a rather unfortunate hand. Um, this is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a while, uh, joining us all the way from Great Britain, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Overseas. So, Georgia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so maybe let's start with your first introduction to sports. So uh, kayaking was um, your uh, passion. So kind of when did you, when were you first introduced to the sport? How old were you when you started? So I started when I was 10, um, just because the area I lived in is a very water sport based town. And it was the year of the Olympics. And so I was kind of motivated by that. And I started kayaking. And I came off the water after my first session and I told my mum I was going to go to the Olympics. So very early on, it became my big dream. Maybe it's not quite as popular in the States, uh, in the US here, but maybe like uh, for people that aren't familiar with the sport as a whole, can you maybe summarize what competitions like, kind of how courses are structured? Yeah, so I do both kayaking and rowing. So they're both flat water. The kayaking consists of sprints or marathons. Um, so the sprints are generally, you know, 200, 500, 1,000 meters. A marathon depends on your age. So as a junior, it was kind of up to about 25 kilometers. And then obviously rowing, you have normally just a two kilometer race. So 2,000 meters. Okay. Are the boats different? Is the composition of people in the boat different? Yeah. So with kayaking, you have like K1, K2 and K4. And it stands for kayak one, kayak two. So how many people are in the boat? And then rowing, you can also have the same one, two, four, and also eight. Okay. Uh, so at 15, you represented uh, your country at the World Championships. Um, maybe explain a little bit about that, that experience and uh, the success of it. Yeah, so I went in kind of the underdog. I was the youngest to ever go. Um, so no one really knew what was coming out of it we kind of were told this is going to be a big lesson for you and that would be good to learn from the older athletes and I just remember being on the start line this tiny 15 year old surrounded by all these very strong looking 18 year olds that to me at that time looked old and um, so it's quite daunting but yeah it was, it was very exciting at the same time what was the distance for that race so in this one I was doing because it was marathons but you also have a short course added in so it was a five kilometer race as well as the 21 kilometer race. Oh, wow. How long does that take the the longer the 21 kilometer? Um, it takes about an hour and a half because you also have something called portages during it so portages is where you have to get out and run with your boat usually in the UK it's on rivers over these like locks that you can't paddle through and so to keep it you know, continuous with all the races, they added it in. And so a lot of beach portages, we have to literally jump out your boat halfway through paddling into shallow water and then run maybe about, you know, up to 200 meters. Okay. All right. I hadn't even envisioned that that was part of the, uh, the event as a whole. That's, that's interesting. Um, so shortly after that success, um, uh, just through some of the stuff I've read, refer to it as an injury and accident. Can you maybe kind of take us through what happened and maybe symptomatically um, what you were feeling and then how that manifested. 
Yeah, so obviously return from winning the two golds at the World World Championships, returned home and shortly after I um, fell from a height and hit the back of my head, which unfortunately led to my first brain injury. So obviously being 15, it, it was tough and I wasn't very aware for a little while, but it was, you know, a challenge to get back. I lost my memory, a lot of it. So, you know, counting and and some words were quite tricky and like naming things as well as I didn't have any balance and coordination. So I kind of had to relearn that, um, which took a long time to, you know, relearn walking. So I spent a couple of months in the hospital before I returned home. And the first thing I wanted to do was obviously get back in my boat and get back training. Yeah. So it was a TBI. It wasn't a spinal cord injury. No. So at this time it was a yeah traumatic brain injury. And then symptomatically, is that when you were initially diagnosed with FND or was that a later? Yeah, so that time it, I was diagnosed. Obviously, we found out later misdiagnosed, but at that point I was diagnosed with a neurological condition because no one could really understand what was going on at the point. Like there were some things that just didn't add up and they didn't know. Um, you know, it wasn't so problematic at the time because I did recover quite quickly and got back to my sport and kind of put it behind me so were you was there questioning in the medical community as to like how symptoms were um being demonstrated and stuff like were people doubting i guess the validity of it yeah yeah for sure i mean i was quite a confusing case and no one really knew what was going on hence why i got put under this label um because they use this label a lot to kind of put things they don't understand into and at that time, even though it was a few years, the testing for what I now found out I have wasn't really that good. Uh, so they hadn't even questioned kind of continuing testing and they were just waiting and seeing uh, to see if I got better and if I recovered. Yeah. So what did it end up being diagnosed as? So I was only diagnosed this year um, with something called MELAS. It's a mitochondrial disorder. And obviously it's taken us six years to get to that diagnosis, mainly because of the fact it's so rare and I have it sporadically. So, you know, my mum doesn't have it, it's usually genetic, but no one in my family has it. But also I've got it as late onset, so later. Uh, and it was only diagnosed because it had progressed so much that it was showing up more on scans and tests. And even in those few years, you know, six years, the testing devices and stuff had advanced enough to get the diagnosis. So was it a product of that accident or was it a genetic condition that would have manifested either way? So this is what they're still researching because before that date, you know, I had no issues before the injury and obviously mitochondria is your energy. So they're like, how are you an elite athlete and things like that. So it's quite confusing at the moment. We don't really know, but they're thinking that it was always dormant and I always had it. And obviously a trigger to my nervous system, let alone all the other injuries I had, must have just been too much for my body. And so it started to progress and manifest a lot quickly. Yeah. So after that first accident, at, you were 16, right? Around 16? Yeah, I was 16. Uh, you returned to kayaking, competed at a high level again at 17. So that was just in traditional kayaking, right? Not Paralympic? Uh, no, this was traditional kayaking. And I was also doing rowing at this point too. Um, but it was just, yeah. I was with the able-bodied athletes at this point because I'd made that full recovery. Mm -hmm. And then did you happen to have a, another accident or another injury that... 
Yeah, so when I was 16, I so that year, amazing. Like, you know, I went back to Worlds and got two silvers. I went to the Junior Olympics and um, was traveling all over the world competing. And unfortunately, in the December that year, when I was yeah, 16, I had another brain injury uh, in a bit of a freak accident. But this one was a lot worse. This was a traumatic brain injury where I spent the next three months in intensive care and then went on to spend nine months in rehabilitation, kind of relearning to talk, relearning to eat. And I had no movement from the neck down, so I had to relearn kind of all movements again. And how long? You said you were nine months in rehab. Yeah, so in total it was a year in hospital um, and nine months in the rehabilitation centre, going through like, you know, four hours of physio a day and things like that. What was that kind of like from, a, I guess, a mindset standpoint? So you're a world-class athlete and then you have this accident that puts you into a year-long battle to kind of get back to where you were. Were there specific factors that were motivating or kind of that kept you engaged during that process? I think a lot of the time I tended to try and treat my physio sessions like training and like a race. You know, you leave nothing behind, you give it your all. And so that's kind of the approach I took. And then also I'd always envision when I was 15 crossing that line, knowing I'd just won the world championship from the youngest, like that feeling. I would visualize that and know that I wanted to get that feeling again. You know, I wanted to get back in my boat. I wanted to go and win again. So that for me was a huge kind of motivator during it. So you started rehab with um, paralyzed from the neck down. And when you finished rehab, what were your physical uh, like symptoms and abilities? So, yeah. So when I went home, I was still paralyzed kind of from the waist down. And I still had some issues with kind of eating and talking, but it was a lot better. And I decided I just needed to get home because I wanted to get back in my boat. So I went home and a week later sat in my boat, still unable to use my legs, but I was off and it felt like I hadn't, you know, not been there that whole time. And I knew from that moment, you know, I'm going to get better. And six weeks later, I started walking. So do you know or do doctors know kind of? what happened between that time where you had no uh, function below the hip or below the waist and then to the point where you were walking again? Was there any connection between the two? Or Yeah, so I think for me and what we think is, you know, being back in a boat where I, I trained for so long and spent so many hours in, it was kind of like muscle memory for me and, you know, that neuroplasticity kicked in and it all just seemed to connect together as well as, you know, in my mind and my mindset improved even more because once I was back in that boat, I just knew this is what I wanted and I was going to fight for it. And I'm still doing rehab every day at home and things like that. And it became more sport orientated for me. And I'm a very competitive individual. So that really helped to enhance my rehab. Were there barriers to getting back into the sport from like an accessibility or a, a physical standpoint? Yeah, like a lot of my local clubs weren't the most accessible, so it was quite hard to get down and get into the boat and train. So a lot of time people would have to lift me down steps and things like that, which is quite tricky. And at the time, I didn't have an adapted boat, so I did fall out a lot because obviously without these my legs, balancing was a lot harder. Yeah. But over time, this did improve. And obviously, there were still issues like because I didn't really have sensation, I'd get sores a lot on in from the boat. So there were things we had to kind of adapt around and that took a little bit of time to get used to, but we got there. 
was it at this point where you entered the the gateway program for Paralympics or yeah so originally I did and then I actually was able enough to go back fully to the team I was in before um so I did go back to that team in the end for a couple years until the other accident which is then when I became the Paralympic athlete um can you maybe take us through that uh transition between the two did it feel different uh was there any feeling of like less than or did it just kind of feel like a natural evolution and like a just like I guess a different competition at first it was hard obviously like leaving my teammates and everything and I think it was quite hard you know I love the sport but it just felt so different now and it was quite a big barrier for me at first I didn't really want to accept it and I just continued to want to train with my like you know my old team and and that was quite a big mind thing I had like battle I had to get through but at the end of the day I was able to do the sport I loved so I was just grateful that I could be back on the water where I loved being yeah are Paralympics uh big in your country or do they have a strong presence yeah Yes, especially for the rowing team. I mean, recently, for example, they've just come back from World Championships and all the boats have qualified for Paris. And, you know, they've gone, loads of them have had world records and stuff. So over here, the rowing Paralympic team is big and really well funded. So obviously, that's really good. When was, um, timeline-wise, when, when were you competing and kind of, I guess, when was the last time you competed? So the last time I was com- competed was earlier this year in February. Okay. Um, so I had two competitions that month, in one in rowing, which was trials, to get through to the next stage for, you know, Paris. And then the other one was a CrossFit competition. So obviously doing the other sport I did, which was adapted CrossFit. Yeah, cool. And for the last, uh, how long have you been in the hospital now? Four or five months. So I've now been in the hospital for five and a half months coming up to six months so what happened between those last competitions and then your current stint in the hospital so in it was end of march i just got really poorly all of a sudden and there was no accident or anything i just collapsed at home and we came in and i was back in intensive care and we were told i had a spinal stroke so obviously at this point we still didn't have a full diagnosis and then this is when the testing began and I got moved to a specialist hospital in London where the mitochondrial condition was found which basically between now and the first accident I've had many IT admissions that have never been explained and no one's really know what's gone on. Um, so now we do have answers for that and this mitochondrial condition is to blame for a lot of what I've gone through and obviously yeah so this spinal stroke having been so high up paralyzed me from the neck down and the first few weeks you know talking my vision was affected and with melas you get lactic acidosis and like strokes so it can cause lesions on my spine or my brain which is what happened in this case and that's when you first or when you first got introduced to like melas as a diagnosis was this most recent uh yeah yes yes it wasn't until it would have been um june that i got diagnosed because it does take months and i mean we still have many unanswered questions at the moment but it takes a lot of time i mean the muscle biopsy takes six months to come back well okay all right yeah it's a rare condition so i'm guessing that most people uh that are listening aren't familiar with it so um 
do you know enough to maybe give like a little bit of a synopsis of what it's like and kind of what the treatment is, what the physio is? Yeah, of course. So mitochondrial disorders, basically your mitochondria produce 90% of your energy in your body and your cells. So when you have this depletion of mitochondria, it affects how your body reacts to things. So for me, it's infections. So an infection can very quickly become life-threatening. And anything that's too much for my body, so any of us um, can cause these metabolic strokes. And it's basically kind of an autoimmune where my, it's through my metabolic, mitochondrial and nervous system. So they're all combined. And yeah, it can cause things like seizures, vision issues, hearing issues. And usually it is diagnosed when you're a child. You're normally born with it. And it is an incurable dis- disease. Um, I mean, it was only discovered, mitochondrial disorders were only discovered 30 years ago. So in the medical world, it's still a very new discovery. So there's not much treatment options out there yet. And physio, obviously, I have the spinal point of view of the physio, of the spinal injury treatment. But then there's also this area of we have to be careful. I don't push my body too much because obviously energy is a big thing too. Yeah. So you've been in the hospital since March. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, what does a typical day look like? And I guess kind of what are you, what's like the outlook? Kind of what are you working towards or what are the qualifications, I guess, that you have to meet to be discharged or head back home or what's preventing you from heading home? Yeah, so I mean, a, a daily, a kind of a day in the hospital, it's not the most exciting, mm-hmm. but um i hope you have physio every day which is just like for like 45 minutes an hour sometimes lots of friends and family coming in and bringing me food that's edible unlike the hospital food and it's a lot of like consultations with doctors and things like that and at the moment we are in the process of planning home but we also have been for two months because it is quite complex like you know obviously i did come into hospital in a wheelchair but now because of the damage and my physical ability i need a more supportive one so my house have having to be more adapted care put in place but also you know the doctors do tell me you know it's all about care and comfort it's not about treatment so they see melas or mitochondrial as a terminal diagnosis because there is no treatment out there but then i see it as they don't know much about it i'm already a very rare case as it is so they don't know what the outlook is so for me, that's a positive thing because as soon as I'm home, you know, I'm going to get back into the gym and back to training because after all, training sort of saved my life so many times, being physically fit, going into all these injuries and setbacks, my body's had a better baseline than maybe some others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They, they typically say with uh, TBIs and SEIs, the more fit you were before the accident, the more likely you will be to recover or at least improve from uh, a baseline standpoint. Um, I just like some, I guess, I I know you've been on a couple different podcasts and uh, recently, and it's tough to like ask about some of these things, I guess, like your outlook on something when it's, when it's labeled terminal, Um, like, I guess how you even handle that. Um, And I guess like when, when you were first diagnosed with Milos, maybe like what was your, your first impression or what were your first thoughts? Yeah. So um, they came in and my mum was here. They'd asked her to be here and they told told my mum to sit down. So I immediately knew something wasn't good. 
And when they said what I had, you know, this mitochondrial condition, I was like, we finally have answers. Good. Like, I was so happy. I was like, I asked them, I was like, what do we do? What treatment can I take? What medication will work? And that's when, of course, they said there is nothing. And I just remember my stomach and my heart just dropped and it sank. And uh, it was definitely a very scary moment for all of us. There was kind of bittersweet. Obviously, we have answers, yet it's not the answer anyone would ever want. But I'm very stubborn and them saying, you know, all these things like you're not going to get better, you're not going to do this, kind of lit this fire in me like, you don't know me, <laughs> just you wait and see and I will prove you wrong. I've done it before and I'm going to do it again. So yeah, that absolutely. continues to kind of be my outlook. I think that, you know, I just need to get back in a boat. It's worked so many times before and it's my happy place and training and as I said, neuroplasticity and just obviously mental health wise, it's so important for me. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to following along with that transition. Um, is there, how do I want to phrase this? So sometimes we'll hear with like the disability or the adaptive uh, space where disability is viewed as an inspiration. Uh, so it's a question that we've been asking some of the guests, like, do you want to be considered inspirational or what do you want to be known as, as an athlete? I think sometimes it's hard when people call me inspirational or strong and things like that because I definitely get imposter syndrome and I'm like, well, I, I don't know. Like, you know, I haven't done everything and I'm quite hard on myself. And I'm like, I haven't won a Paralympic gold yet. And I think it is sometimes easy for people to say that to someone who's especially struggling or doing well. But at the same time, I just want to be viewed as any other athlete that's doing well. And with my story, I just want to share awareness of this condition, but also hope more than anything and I don't tend to view myself as an inspiration as I as I said like you know I, I still feel I've got so much more to achieve before I deserve that title have you met anyone else that has Milas or have you connected with anyone with the same diagnosis no so as I said it's mainly childhood and unfortunately when you you do have it as a child you die in early years so I am a very rare case and um, one in the of the only in the world so it's very hard to find people in a similar position um especially because i'm so still cognitively aware which again is very rare for this disease normally you know with the brain lesions it does affect your cognitive um processing but so i'm just a bit of a rare case a bit of a miracle in, in their eyes at the moment what was uh maybe we can look at this through like a fitness lens. So you were, you were participating in adaptive CrossFit as well. Um, what do you think gyms need to do, I guess, to be more accessible and inclusive? I think going into a gym in a wheelchair is quite daunting because you're surrounded by all these able-bodied people, you know, doing different things. And I'm never good at asking for help, you know, when equipment, I can't reach it or it's in the way and things like that. And I think some gyms are set up here that, are very close together so it's really hard to access certain things i think the gym industry needs to be more aware of accessibility needs so a lot of gyms local to me didn't have lifts or you know one um had a disabled toilet but it was on the top floor and there was no lift to it so there are these barriers still there and i think you know i was an athlete before so sports always been what i've loved and that's why i went back to it and i think as someone who hasn't had that before and going in you know as a less able person it is difficult 
And I think there just needs to be more awareness out there in a way of like, you know, when they're planning the gyms, they need to think more of spacing and adaptions. And but then again, I also experience a lot of people kind of pity you in a way and they want to then overly help you. And sometimes you just want to get on with it yourself and test your own limits and barriers. And I'd be doing things and people would be watching like, should she be doing that? Like, is that okay? And that also really frustrated me because I just want to be seen as anyone else that goes to the gym. Like, you know, I'm there to get fit, healthy and feel good, just like everyone else, no matter my ability. Yeah, yeah, we we talk about that as like a charity model of disability where people with disabilities are seen as someone less than who has to be helped by this able-bodied person, uh, knight in shining armor comes to save them, etc. And it's kind of how it's portrayed in like literature and uh, movies a lot of the time. Whereas we want to like kind of normalize disability, like you said, it's part of an educational process. And I think a lot of times people just aren't immersed alongside people with disabilities, so they don't even know how to act. It's like they feel like they're gonna uh, say something wrong or they're going to offend the individual if they even try to interact with them. Um, so that's been it's been a tough thing to navigate, for sure. Yeah, I feel like people don't always know what to say and they're walking on eggshells around you because, as you said, they don't want to say the wrong thing. And some things overcompensate and, you know, it does feel like they're looking down at you at times and and that is definitely hard and it is still a barrier out there did you find the coaches to be pretty accommodating with uh what you needed yes i was really lucky where i the gym i i joined is is amazing and they'd had a girl in a wheelchair similar age before so they kind of learned from that experience too and they were really good and they did let me get on with it and they were there to help and you know it became a very friendly environment, which was really inviting. So then, you know, I became excited to go to the gym. I wasn't nervous anymore. And I think I was very competitive. So, you know, I was always challenging the overbody people to do things like chin-ups and everything like that, which was, for me, a very empowering thing to do. What are your goals for 2024? What do you kind of see the next year looking like? So, obviously, to get back in the GB team and qualify again, and get back on the Paralympic pathway. And I'd like to attend the World Championships as well as get more involved in other sports. You know, I'd like to get involved in um, obviously back to CrossFit and do the CrossFit Games, but also triathlon. I'd love to do paratriathlon para and really just try out all these sports that are out there because now I've got the opportunity to. I'd love to give, you know, wheelchair rugby a go as well. That's awesome. Yeah. What um, if people are listening and invested in your story i guess what how can they help you or how can they support you i guess it's all about spreading awareness and i've tried to through this journey be a lot more open with the truth and you know both the good and the bad and i think trying to bring awareness to this rare mitochondrial disorder is really important but also sharing my story of hope and hopefully you know when i'm back in that boat and i'm back competing showing people that no matter what what your disability is and no matter what you're told it matters what you believe not what everyone else believes so I guess it's, it's just help sharing my story and and sharing what I'm doing and you know I'm trying to show people that it's always possible especially in the fitness industry mm. and I'm working on developing a kind of program for people near me who've gone through spinal injuries in the local spinal units to get into Paralympic sports and kind of join all these 
things that are out there the pathways which are really well funded and you meet other people like you because I've never really met someone young and in a wheelchair until I started rowing with the Paralympic team. How important do you think representation is in sport? I think it's really important because I watched, you know, the Paralympics all through my time kayaking and rowing and I found it, it was incredible. And I was like, especially when I went through the injury and knowing that was there was really important. And if it wasn't so you know, put on TV more and things like that, then people might not know it's out there all the time. But I only knew because I did the sport before and I think it needs to be shown more. And especially in the fitness industry, like personal trainers knowing more about how to do PT sessions with adapted athletes and how to accommodate their needs, but still reach those goals they want to have. Yeah, yeah I hope more fitness professionals can view adaptive fitness from like a performance lens and not always like a rehabilitative lens um like we make sure that we communicate that we're not doing like physical therapy we're taking whatever your goal is so if it's to get back in a boat like okay what physical ability do you need to be successful with that and then catering the workout to that and i think a lot of people view disability and injury synonymously um so they're kind of afraid that they're going to hurt the individual but um at the same way and i guess in the same lens like if you just kind of take what the individual is able to do what they need to be able to do and kind of work towards that goal it's not a whole lot different than training um people with disabilities so yeah i agree and um i think as well rehab is more you know you're focusing on what you can't do whereas sport you're focusing on what you can do i think that's really important like for me when i went back to the gym got back in a boat I felt like I was living again, not just existing. I think that's really important for people out there to realise that sport, you know, you're using every cap- any capability you have to get out there, have fun and do what others are doing. Yeah, yeah that was a conversation that I've uh, had with a client recently where long stint in rehabilitation after a stroke and kind of talking about how now like we're working on specific goals. It's not about recovering what you lost, but it's about like getting to where you want to be. So it's biking better, swimming better, doing the things that you want to accomplish. And I, I guess to a degree, you almost like have to kind of hit a reset button and reevaluate goals and like have something to work towards. Uh, but that's really no different than like every few years, I guess, from my career, I have a different goal and I want to work on something. And um so i i guess the injury is kind of the same way we we have a quote in the course that says like life does not end with a with a disability it begins uh which is from like ernst van dyke who's a a famous wheelchair racer who's won boston a bunch of times and uh that can be true um but i i guess i'm just speaking on uh from experience of conversations that i've had with people so no i i couldn't agree more and i think uh, sport kind of got me that strength back and I every time I went back to training my progress was so much more but without me even realizing like without me focusing on it it came as kind of a secondary to me wanting to compete because I'm a very competitive person and as you said like goals do change and you know mine changed from the Olympics to the Paralympics but it's still my goal at the end of the day and obviously I'm still doing the same sport but it's slightly different and it's had to be adapted but I can still do it yeah, the coverage on the last Paralympics Games, I think, was really important. And I'm sure Paris will have uh, equal amounts of uh, television presence and stuff, at least in the States. Uh, they made a really strong push 
uh, with the most recent games to document and uh, show more of it. And I think that's really played a large role. I guess I see like more uh, track and field uh, inclusion and diversity in some of these larger meets in the States here. Uh, so I hope that trend continues, obviously, and uh, give adaptive athletes the platform that they deserve. For sure. I mean, we just we had Wimbledon this um, summer, the big tennis tournament, and it was the first time they really televised the wheelchair tennis, which is a truly remarkable sport. I mean, they're so talented in what they do, and I think it was a big step in the right direction for tennis um, at such a big event as well. I think it was really good. Absolutely. Um, maybe as one other question that we, we sometimes ask our guests, like, do you have any um, disdain towards the word disabled? Uh, are you comfortable um, considering yourself someone with a disability or do you like a different terminology? Because I think that's one thing that a lot of people get hung up on uh, when communicating with people with disabilities is like the jargon and the terminology. For sure. I think it took me a long time to accept that word. Um, and now I kind of own it. And I know it took a long time for my mum to accept it. She said, no, you're not disabled, you know. But at the same time, I am. But I tend to more say I'm less able or, you know, I um, I mean, disabled we do use, but we, I tend to avoid it in all honesty, especially when it comes to sport. Yeah. I use the word adapted a lot you know, yeah. I'm adapted rower. I'm not, yes. you know, a disabled rower. I'm adapted because it's just yeah. a little bit yeah. different. Para, than... para, para and adaptive seem like they're perfectly uh, useful terms, I guess, in that scenario. And I can't really envision like any scenarios and conversation where I would have to say, oh, that's the disabled athlete and that's the able-bodied athlete. It's just, um, I think sometimes you hear both sides of the um, like coin with, with some of the terminology. And I think it often presents or prevents people from even communicating with someone with a disability because they're afraid that they're going to offend. Um, so I don't know if there's really an answer to like clarifying some of that. It seems like every person I ask has a slightly different opinion. Uh, but at the end of the day, like you said, you don't really need to have that, um, that term, I guess, labeled to you. You can just you can be a para-athlete, you can be a para-rower, uh, you can be an adaptive athlete. So it's just a question yeah. that I like to like to hear uh, firsthand, I guess, examples of it um, and hear from you instead of me bestowing upon other people what my thoughts are. So um, Georgia, thank you for sharing your story. Um, we'll be pulling for you and I'll make sure we link the uh, your profiles and stuff. And if anyone wants to follow along with your return to Paralympic sport. Um, but again, really appreciate you joining us from um, overseas here and uh, sharing your story. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.